This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 110 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most powerful female executives in the history of the entertainment industry, and perhaps the single most influential figure in the history of documentary filmmaking, Sheila Nevins, the president of HBO Documentary Films. The 73-year-old has been at HBO since 1979 and has guided docs to 26 Academy Awards, 65 Emmy Awards, and 46 Peabody Awards, while personally winning 32 Primetime Emmys more than any other person in history, as well as a personal Peabody Award in 1999 for being, quote, one of the true independent spirits in television today, close quote. Over the course of our conversation in her corner office at HBO's headquarters in Midtown Manhattan, Nevins and I discuss how a person who grew up without a television wound up working in that medium for the likes of PBS under Don Misher, ABC under Bob Shanks, and CBS under Don Hewitt, why she turned down a job at 60 Minutes for what was supposed to be just a 13-week gig at a new cable network called Home Box Office, what the doc financing and distribution scene looked like at that time and how HBO documentary films changed it, how the arrival of Vice at HBO and the rise of streaming services like Netflix and Amazon has impacted HBO documentary films, which docs from over the years she's proudest of helping, from Paradise Lost to Gasland to Citizen Four to The Jinx, as well as many others you may not have heard of, and what she thinks the future holds for her, for HBO documentary films, and for documentary filmmaking in general. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Sheila, thank you so much for doing this. To begin with, we always just ask for the record, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in New York City on 6th Street and 2nd Avenue, which is now very in, very downtown village. Then it was sort of immigrant land, horse and carriage outside the window. No, just kidding. (laughs) My father was a gambler and a bookie, and I had a very wealthy uncle who got me into and were paid for my good schooling. But he maneuvered a job for my dad at the post office. And so my father was a, he used to box mail Mm -hmm. while he booked bets. Mm -hmm. So to this day, when something arrives by mail, I always think, you know, shit, it works. Somebody (laughs) somewhere is mailing this correctly. My mother was in a family of three boys. She went to Hunter and majored in physics and chemistry. She was besieged with an illness called Raynoid's, she had pernicious Raynoid's disease mm-hmm. and scleroderma, which was different than a Raynoid's disease where your hands get cold. Mm-hmm. She had many amputations. She was a college graduate. She was in a wheelchair for the last, I'd say, eight years of her life and probably had 45 surgeries <sighs> of various kinds. You know, the tip of your finger, the tip of your toe, your toe. When she died, she had no leg and no arm. Oh, wow. And she, but she and lived the full life or she died young? She died in her 50s, which I guess is young. Mm-hmm. I thought she was very old. Mm. I was born when she was 22. So, you know, um, uh, she was tough. How did it shape you to grow up around somebody that was like well, that? Under, the, under both of those parents? <laughs> well, I learned a lot about math because I knew about odds from Jimmy the Greek and my dad. I knew I knew odds. I, I never had a team like I always had who my father bet. So I always knew odds. Like even if the Yankees would win, if they didn't win by the points, I would know that <laughs> they really lost and that my dad lost. Right. You know, so I knew about points. When I went to Las Vegas for HBO at some points, I understood everything right away, <laughs> much faster than my other educated colleagues right but i'm good at gambling now how big a part of your life was tv when you were growing up nothing my mother didn't allow us to have a television i used to have to go to my girlfriend's house to watch the ed sullivan show and your show of shows on a tiny little set but i had to have all my homework done by then her name was elaine i can't (laughs) remember her last name but i had to cross the street to to watch television on sunday night what was your parents issue with television that I wouldn't get good grades in they school, would, yeah. and then my uncle wouldn't pay for some classy girls' college. Mm-hmm. No, I lusted after television. I lust. I used to stand outside, you know, where they had televisions for sale, and you could see shows. I used to watch them there and think, <laughs> one day I'm going to have a television set. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, when, and and what was your first exposure to documentaries? Do you remember when you first kind of? Saw one and I when you saw were impressed by one. Salesman, mm-hmm. the Maisel Salesman. I don't even know what year that was. It's like um, I thought it was the greatest film I had ever seen, and I saw Harlan County. I don't know what year that was, mm-hmm. and I thought it was the greatest, greatest fight back film I'd ever seen. And I saw the woman who made it. She was like wearing a, like a hat with her husband, and they went into coal mines. And I thought, I wonder if I have those the balls to do that kind of thing. <laughs> But at the time, I had went, I went to the Yale Drama School. I majored in directing. And for the first three years of my, after I graduated, I taught English on television for USIA. Can I um, stop you for a sec? Sure. Coming out of Yale Drama School, where yeah. you got your MFA, this is after Barnard, right? right? So your goal was to be a theater director? Oh, desperate. 
And why was that Don't and why didn't that cry. happen? No, what happened? Because I married a, a guy. Oh, God, I hope he's not alive. <laughs> I married a guy who was really nice, but he thought women should be more obedient. He thought that I should not be away weekends and nights. Well, if you can't, if you can't, if you, if you want to work in the theater, nights and weekends yeah. is your is your mo. <laughs> so I, that's how I maneuvered into television because I was cute, pretty. Someone told me there were auditions. Somebody that I'd gone to Yale Drama School, who was an actress and who was at the arena stage then, said they were auditioning for some television show called Adventures in English that would go overseas. So I went and auditioned for it, and I got the part. Don Misher was the director. <laughs> I should played say for it. listeners, he's gone on to become yeah, one of the great directors. He does all the award shows. Yes, and... yes, yes, yes. So you're but, there you know, working for him, basically teaching people English. No, I played a secretary named Jean, <laughs> and it was based on a, I think this could be wrong, but it was like a thousand-word vocabulary. So for three years, I don't know that he was there all three years, mm-hmm. but for three years I spoke only those thousand words. So it was like <laughs> being in a, a Beckett play. And right. it was like it was, was theater because you had to make adventures in English out of the three words that you were teaching that day. <laughs> so you would, you know, talk moon, star, cow. And he would say, look at the moon, Gene. I had only one name. He had two names. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> His name was Professor Richards, and I thought that was right then. I didn't know women were supposed to have two names if men had two names. <laughs> now I think women should have three names right. if men have two names. <laughs> but that was different. And uh, so he would say, Gene, did you see the moon? And I would say, Professor Richards, the moon is beautiful. Did you milk the cow? <laughs> and he would say, you know, uh, the, the, I had these discussions you know, for three years, I had these inane discussions. But you probably helped a lot of people learn to speak English. I don't know. You Maybe have to find, we'll have to find them. <laughs> I don't know. So after after a few years, you got sick of Washington. That's where this was. I was Washington, and then there was a job on the other side of the camera, somewhere in in Mexico, that was going to go to USIS, and it was about making hemp and making baskets, and and I went. My marriage ended, and I went, I don't know what you call it, sort of marriage. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Mexico and worked on this. We stayed in Bronxville, I remember, and ate goat and stuff. We'd go across the border. And then we go back to Mexico and work on this film that was to show peasants how to make a living mm-hmm. on goods that they could ship to America. Wow. And we did that for a while. And then I came back, and I think I worked on other docus. And then Don was coming to New York to work on something called The Great American Dream Machine. He was going to direct it. This is at PBS. This was at, well, it was then NET, I think. Ah, I got you. And so I went to work on the show called The you know Great American Dream Machine. And really moved up through the ranks over those two years I didn't years move there. up. I had assessed the next job. No, that's not right. I demanded the next <laughs> job because I learned there that the person I worked for might just know less than I. <laughs> it took me, you know, a good five, six years after Yale to realize that maybe I could do what was next. Right. Then one day we realized we had the show ready, and Alvin H. Perlmutter, still alive, yes, mm-hmm. and wonderful, mm-hmm. and gave us such a break and such a chance to do whatever we wanted. We didn't have a host, and then every docu had a host, and these were little segments, and we needed a host. And it was called A Great American Dream Machine, and Eleanor Bunin, all these people are long gone, did the animation with her husband, and mm-hmm. it was a sort of a eagle elephant that tooted the title, but we didn't have any host to say good morning, good evening, mm-hmm. whatever. And I had seen Salesman, 
This was like 70-something. I had seen it a couple of years before. Mm-hmm. And I asked Al if I could go out and ask people what their great American dream would be. Amazing. And then we could put that in between the pieces, and then we wouldn't have to get a host. Because the big hosts then were not within our reach at public television. They were... You know, Walter Cronkite. Right. You know, we couldn't. You know, and then to invent a host wouldn't wouldn't have been, you know, get a guy. It was a guy, of course. <laughs> so that's what I did. I went and asked people their dreams. And this was before man on the street interviews were kind of a common thing. Now everybody does that. But you were out there, and this was like a, a bridge device between the segments. You would have yeah, people. Yeah, but talk. I don't think man on the street wasn't out there. I I think I don't think I invented anything. I was just looking for a cheap way to get out of an office to give him a bridge, and to invent something. But I think it's also kind of interesting that this... Do you want to make me an inventor? Uh, yeah, no, well, okay, I mean, let's okay. just say... I invented man on the street. <laughs> I invented man. Conan, I invented the street. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel, these guys owe you some royalties. But no, I mean, the thing here, though, that's that that displays, and that may be the earliest yeah. example, is that you're curious in regular people's thoughts. I am so curious. I'm right? curious about you. Well, that's that's less exciting. Are you a regular but, people? You know, any given day I could think be. Di- <laughs> that everybody, if they can express it. Yeah. Not everybody can express it. They right. don't have that gift. But I think everybody who has the gift of words and knows how to use them can tell their story mm-hmm. better than any actor in the world. And I just really believe in that. So that was the beginning of that. That's 71, 72. Then, oh God, was I around? <laughs> <laughs> now that show ends, right? Yes. How do you end up going to and then leaving 2020? Why <gasps> was that? How do you know that? I, I've I've looked into you, you know, a little bit. You know, it's interesting. Okay, good. You know more about me than I do. <laughs> I get choked up talking about it. It was so long ago. I had shot a piece on. Can't remember who the piece was about. Do you have that? Do you know that? Well, tell, tell, tell me a little more about what okay. you're Okay, so I knew Bob Shanks from somewhere. I don't know from where. He ran 2020? Yeah, and he also had done pieces on the Dream Machine, and he was then the boss of 2020, mm-hmm. along with someone named Howard something. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And I was going to do segments. Producing segments. Pro- I don't think I had that word. I think it was a field something, okay. like a field, uh, you know, farmer, sure. whatever the job <laughs> was. I was a field thing. And I went and did a piece... And I can't remember who it was on. And I handed it in, and I was very excited about it. And Bob said, the producers or the whatever we were, the field hands, <laughs> are not going to edit their pieces. You're going to send your pieces in, and then you're going to go out on the field again. I had a small child, but that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was my heart was in the editing of these pieces. And so I... Talked to my friend Nola and Safro, who was there for many, many years after that, and I said, I can't do it, Nola. I can't. I, I want the job. It's in New York. You know, David Small. Let me talk to Bob about editing my own pieces, that I will even, you know, I'll be good. good. I'll go on the field, but I'll edit them. I'll go into the editing room with the editor, and I'll edit them, but somebody else can't edit my pieces. Because then it, you've just lost any Well, then you're shooting. That. At that time, it was film, reversal film. We were shooting, you know, 30 to 1. Someone's going to take my 30 to 1. I know the story. I was sitting there. Right. So I was very proud. I thought, they can't do this without me. He loves me. I'm so good. I'm so smart. So I went in to see him. I remember it so well. I went to ABC. It was in 60-something street, fairly <laughs> new building. Go up, Shanks. It's 
Washington's birthday, it's closed. Or maybe it was Lincoln's birthday. That was when there wasn't a President's Day. You had days for those guys. Yeah. And I, I don't, it was one of those days, I walked through the park. We lived on East 89th Street. Then I walked through the park, summoning up my courage, knowing I was going to win. Got into the office. Bob Shanks was sitting behind the desk. And I said, Bob, I, ha I love this job. I need this job. I want this job. But I have to edit my own pieces. And he said, well, then leave. <laughs> Jeez. Just like that. And I said, well, is there any compromise? I don't remember the words. Right, right. To this day, he denies it, but it's, it's, it happened. Nola was there. Yeah, right. I said, is there any compromise? He said, no compromise. We need X number of pieces from field hands per month in order to make this magazine show work and go. Wow. So I walked out. We didn't have cell phones, yeah. so I couldn't call my husband. I couldn't call anyone. I couldn't call Nola. I just cried, and I walked through the park back to my house on 89th Street. I thought, I don't have a job. I'm out of work. I don't have a job. That's pretty rough. And, that and was really bad. That, so then the next step. That, you know it hurts today? I would imagine that's rough because you like that job, right? Uh, except for the fact that your work was taken I like the away. idea of short. I don't like to bore people. I like the idea of short pieces, you know, things that move. Today, I think everything, even the things I do, work on, I should say, are too long. Everything's too long, 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 long. You know, you feel people fidgeting. It's too long, 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 long. I like the idea of short pieces. And Shanks was a very, at least on the Dream Machine, he was very cut, 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 cut. And I didn't have a job. Wow. So I lost a job. What was the children's television workshop? Well, then I heard about, God, this is horrible. <laughs> this is like going so far back, but I remember it so clearly. I heard about a job at children's television workshop, writing. And I thought, why not? You know, you get a writer's guild, you get coverage, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so this was the great Joan Cooney, and they had Sesame Street, and they were doing a show called Feeling Good. And I wrote for it for a couple of years, maybe. But most of it was research. Research, research, Just research. Just about a wide variety of Yeah, topics. watching eyeballs of 10-year-olds. Right. Research, research, research. And, I mean, I learned a lot about that I needed to go out and do pieces. So I read somewhere that a kid had found an arrowhead that was from, or a bone that might have been a dinosaur bone. Or anything, and I went out and did that piece. I don't know if it ever made it to air. I stayed there about two years. The next and, I think, last job before HBO. I know, my life. HBO. Was, well, so. <laughs> ABC. Well, so, well, I. I <laughs> CBS, right? No, you, first it was ABC. So you're going I did back, back to of the book. I went back to ABC because Harry Reisner asked me, I don't know how I knew him, to do back of the book pieces for the show. So the show would be all about important things, and then there would be a piece about Which a dog, show a dog hotel. It's called The Reisner Report. Okay, gotcha. And I did the back of the book pieces, and they were really stupid. I did a dog hotel. I did <laughs> stewardesses are now, flight attendants are not pretty anymore. I did anything. Right. And they would always cut my piece because the football game would run long, <laughs> and so the last piece was always the, the, the one that wasn't important. <laughs> I did one on old people saying, I do. They cut that, and I loved this piece so right. much. And then I heard about a job at CBS, and I went there and worked on Who's Who for a while. And then Don Hewitt asked me to be on camera. So Don Hewitt, though, was producing Who's Who? He was producing Who's Who, but he was known for 60 Minutes. Of course, and but and Who's Who, which is not around anymore, no, was basically was personality pieces? Yeah, it was like the, uh, around the advent of People magazine. Okay. They would fling People magazine at us and say, we're going to do things about people. Right. And, you know, the other is politics. We're cowboys on 60 Minutes, but we're 
people. And you've never been especially enamored with celebrities, right? Even the things you do at HBO, our docs are not There are two kinds of celebrities. There's, if they're like a Gloria Steinem, then they're part of the American flag. I don't mind those. But I do mind fame. I like to watch them. Mm -hmm. I appreciate people who do them. But if somebody's already been discovered, I have no interest. I don't know, you know, not that I'm going to find penicillin or the cure for cancer, <laughs> but I think there are untapped resources in regular people. Yeah. And I thought the thing about Gloria, the way I got the, Gloria, was I saw her work walking on Lexington Avenue, and she, nobody knew who she was. And I thought, that's crazy. Jesus, this is Gloria Steinem. Nobody knows who she is. This is probably 10 or 12 years ago. Right. So she was a people, but she was not a, and she was a famous people, but she was an unrecognized for all that she'd done. So we did that show. We did her. But yeah. I, I, celebrity, maybe it doesn't come from faith in ordinary people. Maybe it comes from being intimidated by them. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you for sure. But at Who's Who, that's the central mission, right? Yes, and, and I did Diane von Furstenberg, who to this day is my very good friend. Yeah. I shouldn't say very good. That's Artie. <laughs> She's a friend. Yep. I could go to her. I did Richard Burton. When that he came one I need out to of his trailer, <laughs> I almost fainted. Right, right. I almost fainted. I went to Toronto, and I was held up with my Synthroid pills because they had become powder in my thing. <laughs> and I was held up at immigration. I was afraid I was going to be late to meet him. I was supposed to meet him at like 2 o'clock. I got off the plane. They held me in immigration. They tested it, and then like that. <laughs> they had to call my endocrinologist. I rushed to the thing. I knocked on his door. I was all out of breath. He was in a trailer. He opened the door, and I saw actual stars. Mm-hmm. Stars! Like, they, you know how they say that, like in a cartoon? You know, I actually saw stars. Because was he was Richard so Burton. handsome. He said, hello, my yeah. darling. <laughs> hello, darling. He's married to this ex-wife of a race car driver, then this beautiful woman, and right. he was doing Equus, and my job was to pre-interview him for Barbara Howard, who was going to do the actual interview. It kind of went he awry, though, right? How do you know? I, I, I've heard. He, Jesus Christ. So this, in this case, it was just... It went awry because it was leak. there was light leak in the camera, and it was the first piece I had ever done in my whole life by myself with a celebrity. Oh, I also did Lily Tomlin at that time, mm-hmm. who was still a friend. Mm-hmm. Anyway... We had to do it again. We had to do the Richard Burton piece again. And he was nice about it. And, and he was at the Lombardo Hotel in New York. And John Scanlon, I said to him, John, I have to do Richard. And I knew the name that he used in the hotel. It was, you know, like Gregory Smith or whatever. Who's John so, Scanlon? John Scanlon was a PR person. Oh, Springer. Springer, not yeah, Scanlon. Yeah, yeah. Springer. Yeah. John Springer. I think I still have the finger marks from him. <laughs> from and doing. I said to him, I have to call him in New York. I called the office. I did it the right way. You had told me how to do it. I called and I said, Mr. Springer, I have to do the interview again. And he sings How to Handle a Woman, and I have to get him to do it again. And I have to call him directly. And he said, you can't. He's done all the publicity for Equus mm-hmm. that he can do. And he's, you know, but I knew that he was at the Lombardo Hotel. So I called the Lombardo Hotel, his room, and Susan, or Susie, whatever her mm-hmm. name was, answered the phone. And I said, do you remember me? I'm the woman, the little girl came, you know. And she said, yes, of course. She said, Richard. You know, and he said, of course. So we set up to reshoot the interview and have him sing How to Handle a Woman Again, which I'd seen in Camelot. So I think it was from that. Yeah, it sounds Yeah, right. I think it was from that. 
And but but that was where the light leak was when he was singing this song, oh, sitting in a chair, singing how to handle a woman. Da, 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 da. You can't lose the that. The way to handle a woman <laughs> is to love her simply. Love. I mean, it was to die. Right. I had to, and there was like flashing light in it. Right. Okay, so I go in, and John Springer's in the room. I know his son now. Lovely, yeah, Gary. lovely, Jared, lovely. And he took my hand, and he said, "You will never." You will never work again. <laughs> he said, you had no right to call him. And he stuck these nails, and he was smoking, smoking, mm. stuck these nails in my hand, and I did the interview again. Right. And he couldn't have been more charming. He couldn't have been. I mean, Burton, Burton was, yeah. he was heaven. And he you, was lovely. in part through that, the actual, through the piece that resulted, really had a fan in Don Hewitt, right? And, yes, he liked me a lot. And so he liked you enough to say... Yeah. Come work at 60 Minutes? Horrifying. Why was that a no? I can't imagine because, many people have turned him down. Because I would be on camera. You didn't and because be. I, I'm really not interested in politics. I wasn't interested in famous people. And I thought, I'll be nervous all the time. I won't be a good mother, which I'm not sure I was anyway. I won't be a friend. I'll be traveling all the time. And I don't want to go to Saudi Arabia. I'm not, I'm not really interested. I'd rather read about it. And Don, I mean, he's not alive now, but he would tell you, he told me, you're the only person who ever turned me down, <laughs> which made me very nervous and very sad because I respected him so much, and I really, I really didn't want to turn him down, but I really didn't want to be on camera. And at the time, though, that you were given this offer to go there, yeah. isn't it about the same time that you... Yes, I heard hear- about HBO. Yes. Now, yeah. at I'm the- not totally stupid. No, no, no. no. So you, did, you weren't yeah. saying no without a, something else there. No, no, and yeah. I think he would have let me be a producer. Right. You know, because at the time, I think, if this is correct, he was inter- interviewing Candace, and he was interviewing Leslie. It, mm-hmm. couldn't, it might not be right, but the, these were wonderful women who mm-hmm. could have done this much better than I could, and I wasn't really interested but I think I could have put, but then I heard about someone called me and asked me if I knew anyone who wanted to work in documentaries at HBO. And by the way, at that point, did you know what HBO was? It wasn't Not really. a fucking idea <laughs> in the world. I didn't know what it was. I still didn't have a television. Oh, my God. I still didn't have a television because I was afraid my son would watch television. Let alone cable. I didn't know what cable was. I didn't know, understand the concept of cable. Uh, now I had many more concepts to understand, like streaming and things right, magic right. in the air and things that pop up and then you put them on your television right. set by pushing them. I, I know, I know. I'm living in a magic universe. No, I went across the street to the 42nd Street Library and I read about cable. And I read about this thing called Home Box Office and I realized it was part of something called Time Life, I mm-hmm, think it was mm-hmm. then, and that it would come to you through a cable and that it would be... It was only eight hours a day right now, but that it was unedited movies. And I thought, ooh, you know, mm-hmm. unedited, R-rated in your home. Whoa. Right. So I suggested myself for the job. And this, again, was 13-week. That's all you 13 were getting. 13 weeks. Commitment. It was a 13-week contract. And what were you yeah. supposed to do in that time? Well, I thought I was the director of documentaries, so I thought I would be directing documentaries. And since I was a member of the Writers Guild, I thought, oh, good, I'll be Director's Guild, and then when I have my psychiatric bills, the difference can be paid by the DGA since the WGA only paid like 60% at the time. <laughs> so, so I figured, you know, I'll be a director, I'll be a writer, I'll do whatever they want. So that's <laughs> the main reason that you... you uh... No, I also thought it was interesting. It got me away from Don without insulting him. Mm-hmm. 
It was adventurous. Mm -hmm. It was less money than I was making at, at CBS, but it was not real money at that time anyway. And it was new. And I liked the idea that it was Life magazine and Time magazine and, you know, the whole idea of things that I knew, that I read, that my mother let me read, yeah. <laughs> was making television in some way. It was It was just interesting, and certainly for 13 weeks. And I didn't want to hurt Don's feelings and because I thought it would be costly. So meaning that you wanted to, you were ready to leave working yeah, for Yeah, but Don. I didn't want to leave unless I could say to him, you know, Don, I, there's this job at this place called Home Box Office, and it's like, you know, I could be like the director of document. I mean, I thought I was going to be the be director. Directing, yeah. yeah. And I said, you know, then I can be a member of a guild, another guild, and you don't have that here. It's a different kind of union. And, you know, and he said, do what you think best. You'll be sorry. Hmm. You know, but we were, we were friends for, you know. When you started HBO, how quickly were you disabused of the notion that you were going to be Within directing? Within 24 hours. Yeah. I bought these shoes in a place called Energetics. Ugly walking shoes because if <laughs> I'm going to be directing... <laughs> And I didn't wear them to work the first day, but right. there was a man named Michael Fuchs who was really my early mentor. And, you know, it's sort of an interesting, good boss. Mm. And I went to meet him, and he told me that I was going to get people to make documentaries for HBO. And that's how I, you know, and I remember calling someone and saying, I'm not, I'm not a director. I'm, do, I'm like, it's like a, a thing like you're a manager and then you become a director and then it's like a corporate job <laughs> so I it's only 13 weeks so that'll be fine and that was the that and was what happened story. at the end of the 13 weeks I never wanted to leave and they said we want to keep this going we we like what you're doing I don't think they were that nice I think no? I said I want to stay and they said I think I got a 26 week contract and it just kept going and I life. think it kept being 26 weeks 26 weeks you know until I was not on staff for a couple of years. That's why I never had stock that was worth any money. <laughs> and how early on was it a, a case where you were not having to get sign-off basically from others if you wanted to do a certain doc? Well, you know, that's you, such an interesting question because it was such an unimportant area that I never needed sign-off. In other words, they needed to fill. They were going from 8 hours to 12 hours. Yeah. And doc use was a cheap way to go from 8 hours to 12 hours. So... Get her in there. Yeah. She knows a couple of people. She used to work at 60 Minutes. They never knew what who's who was. Nor did America. <laughs> Get her in there. She'll hire people. We got to fill this up. She got 40 weeks. By four, 40 weeks from now, we're going to be 12 hours long. We got to fill it up with docus. So, and create a nice precedent, right? Yeah, They're not going to so, tell you what to do with your No, job. they just fill it. Fill it up. Right. Do it. So docus. What did I think? I thought they were history. I thought they were... I mean, I knew there was Harlan County. I knew there was salesmen, but I didn't dream that that would be something that could move here. Well, those were the exceptions to the rule, right? Yeah. Most of them were like Most of them were the state. CIA, what's yeah. wrong with the CIA, you know. Talking heads. You know, talking and Washington and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I thought history, we did something with Dick Cavett called, remember when I think it was called, mm -hmm. the 30, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So that kept me busy. And then there was Hitler. I loved Hitler. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he made for good because they taped every, they filmed every tape. Listen to me. Right, they right. filmed everything then. So it was Hitler and the Jungen Freud, <laughs> and then Hitler and the so and so, right, and Hitler right. and, and, and Churchill and his sadness and his house, you know, <laughs> whatever, anybody. I, I tried to get everybody f that I thought was famous and historical into HBO. Um, that was the beginning. 
But I didn't mind it because I was learning a lot and I was reading a lot and I, you know, there were a lot of GI. Oh, and then I did something called GI Diary, which was for time life. And these were diaries of soldiers in the Second World War, their highest moments. Wow. That was interesting. Now, at that time, PBS really had been the yes. sole place for ducks, yeah. right? I mean, right. And, and funding mm-hmm. almost always came from grants or the government or whatever. So as you were coming into your own at HBO, I believe that coincided with sort of a lot of slashing of, of funding for docs. You mean I didn't invent anything? I just picked up a hole. No. But I, <laughs> my point is I want to yeah. quote back. I, I just recently spoke to a doc filmmaker who told me, quote, Sheila Nevin saved the theatrical feature because oh. she was the only one commercially funding that, that docs. That must have been my mother. No, no. <laughs> but, I mean, that was basically with had HBO not been around at that time, it yeah. would have been a pretty bleak. But day. I didn't go out to save anything. You know what I mean? Nobody was saying I'm drowning. I went out to keep my job. I'm not a pioneer. I'm a right place, right time, smart girl. That's what I am. I was very smart. I've always been smart. I saw a hole. How'd I see the hole? Because Jaws did well. Mm-hmm. How'd I see the hole? Because The War of Roses did well. These are films probably nobody even knows about. I saw, we had something here then, 12-hour service, called Total Survivor Satisfaction, mm-hmm. TSS. There mm-hmm. was no Nielsen. We're too small to have Nielsen's. And lo and behold, I looked and I saw these films, R-rated, one, <laughs> you know, Deadly Animals, two, and, you know, stories about people like War of the Roses, Ordinary People, whatever, that those were doing well as narrative. So I thought, why don't I do those in this thing called documentary form? It wasn't like Eureka, I, you know, I have a... I'm a pioneer, I've discovered, I thought, I want to keep this job, they need stuff, why do I have to do Churchill and Hitler? Why can't I do people getting divorced and taking their clothes off? <laughs> and really, the if those are the polar ends of the types of things that you did, it was, I mean, let's, let's just note that maybe not during this first stand at HBO, there was this period, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, where you stepped away 83 to 85, but afterwards, that's when the sex stuff uh, some of that became more prominent, like Taxi Cab Confessions or whatever. And that, I but, was into it. And early on, though, did you, was the reason for why oh, some of this stuff exists on HBO because you personally enjoyed it or because you recognized that that might enable you to do the kinds that more of no, the kind that you No, it was never to. Peter Paul. No? No. I liked the sex shows just as much as the ones that changed the really? world. It would be a lie to say that I did the sex shows because then I could. I thought sex was part of life. Yeah. As long as kids weren't getting hurt. Right. Then and and as long as they were consenting adults, and as long as you know, I didn't care if men liked men and people wanted to hit each other with a <laughs> hammer. You know, as long as they didn't break their heads, it was okay with me. Yeah. Taxi Cab was okay with me. Right. Eros America, I got that from the Ginsburg books. I bought them at an auction, and I thought, that's it. R-rated <laughs> docu's. Yeah. R-rated films were doing so well on HBO because people were humping. Right. So I thought, well, then I'll do R-rated. And they can't get them anywhere else, right? No, no one's going to do it because they have to sell super suds. Right. You don't have to sell anything. <laughs> so it like it wasn't, I didn't invent the wheel. I copied the wheel. I saw the wheel was working, so I took it off right. one sleigh and I put it on another sled. <laughs> but I mean, R-rated became okay for me to do it. Yeah. I started reading Henry Miller and D.H. Lawrence. I started thinking, I read Chaucer. I started to read things that were historically R-rated. 
so that I wouldn't get too much abuse from my colleagues who say, yeah, you're in a dirty show, you do dirty shows at HBO. <laughs> but I didn't think they were dirty. No. I began to think that they were expressions of affection. They were different for different people. And there was obviously an audience for them. Without question. Right, because ratings-wise, or not ratings, but view, you guys track viewers. We did very well with those shows. Those did well, yeah. And when we first did Heroes America... <laughs> I produced it for HBO, outside of HBO. I produced it, <laughs> it was on Cinemax, something mm -hmm. called Cinemax, because they were afraid to put, and we couldn't show penises, right. and we could show breasts, which shows you the unfairness. <laughs> then we could show vaginas, and then a couple of years later, we could show penises. So it took a while to graduate <laughs> to that stage. But I was there. You were at the beginning. I was yes. there. <laughs> now for, I was there. For a lot of years, you did not take any... Credits. Credits. <gasps> Don. Don and Gimbals. Okay, Don and Gimbals. Okay, so I've been here 10 years, right? I left, I came back, or whatever. I meet Don Hewitt and Gimbals in the, <laughs> I'm sorry, Don, in the tanning department. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was the beginning of thinking sun was bad. Right, right. And there was, um, in Gimbals on 86th Street where I lived, there was a, they called it the sun prevention thing. And it also had pads you could put on your face to be tanned. Don was always tan. And he was buying the things. And I was trying not to get skin cancer. And, you know, and I lived there. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I work at HBO. And he said, what do you do there? I said, well, you know, like I come up with ideas. I take ideas for movies. I, people come in and give us ideas. And we shoot them and, you know, whatever. And he said, oh, you do what I do. He said, what's going to happen when you lose your job? How's anyone going to hire you? I said, well, he said, I thought you were like in like human resources or something. I said, no, no, no. I'm actually coming up with ideas and things and all that kind of stuff. He said, you should take a credit. Mm -hmm. And I said, like what? He said, like I do, executive producer. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay. So then I came back and I, <laughs> I went to Michael Fuchs. And I remember he had his legs up on the desk like that. <laughs> and he was wearing shorts and he was going to go play tennis. He'll kill me. With, <laughs> with somebody. He's going out to play tennis. And I said, you know, Michael, I ran into Don Hewitt. He said, what, are you going back to CBS? I said, no. <laughs> I love it here. I'm not going anywhere, but I want to get credit. Yeah. And he said, so get credit. So Didn't I got credit. Him, right? So I got credit. And then someone said, you have to have a lawyer because you have to make sure it's in your contract because what if Michael leaves? And so I got a lawyer right. who said, you make an awful lot for a woman. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he did. Oh, my God. Ron Conicky. Wow. And so he said, you make an awful lot. And and then I put it in the contract. That's great. And I have done that ever since. We don't take credit if we didn't originate it or influence it. Gotcha. If we just acquire, acquire it. Right. We don't, although sometimes people ask us to at the very end right, to say they, it because they want, you know. Gives them a little bad Yeah, and so you can't say no. But I would say that, that we were very pure about what, and I took everybody with me. Sure. Just jumping by for a sec, why did you leave when you did for that period of 83, 85, and what did you do before coming back? I produced for them. For I, When I came up with the idea for the sex show, nobody wanted to do it. This nobody was, wanted to do Eris America. Yeah. My son was small, and he had Tourette's, and I wanted to be with him. And I thought I was working too hard and traveling too much. The company was very L.A.-oriented. There was a lot of traveling to L.A., and I thought, I'm making all these producers are making much more money than I am. Why can't I produce? So I decided I wanted to do brain games. 
because I got the idea from a placemat in a diner mm -hmm. because my son was always very restless. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And there'd be an airplane and there would be like, you know, pilgrims. Mm. So you think, they're not supposed to be an airplane now, you know. <laughs> so I thought, what a great television yeah. show. So then I went and I got these Victorian rainy day books from the library again. And they had a lot of those, what's wrong with this picture and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take the sex shows that they don't want to do. We'll put them on, we'll put them on Cinemax and they won't be afraid and I'll produce them. I'll be a producer rather than a programmer. So for four years or however many years you have there, I don't know, I'll do Brain Games, which was directly from a placemat, and Eros America, which is directly from the Ginsburg Eros, four books that mm. I got in an auction. You see, I have no original ideas. No, this is great. <laughs> I mean, it's creative. But. And Well, I don't know. It's, but anyway, so I did Brain Games, which won a Peabody, and Eros America, which was the highest rated. I don't know if the highest rated, but it was very well rated. And I had a great time. But I didn't make any money. Right. And I so, made no money. So now you say, I want to come back? No. Michael called me one day and said, I hope this is accurate, Michael. <laughs> I think he called me. I was afraid to call in case they would say I couldn't come back. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid to go to the competition because I felt this was my homestead. Right. And I couldn't, you know. And I, I realized that I was putting all the money into these shows. I wasn't really making any money because, like, if the credits were wrong, I had to fix it. You know, I'm such a perfectionist. And I would have wanted to come back, but I had given the job to a, a colleague, and I didn't really want to take her job away, although I'm not so kind that I wouldn't <laughs> have taken it away had it been offered. But it wasn't offered, and I wasn't going to go after it. Uh, Michael called me once to tell me that Brain Games had won a Peabody and that Jerry Levin who was then the head of Time, whatever it was mm -hmm, called then, mm -hmm. loves Peabody's. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, I want a Peabody. Yeah, right. We'd won one before, but I didn't know it meant anything to right. me. But I had produced this one and invented it and made it. Mm -hmm. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm finishing Eros number six or whatever. I'm doing the best of. And he said, why don't you come back? And, that was, that was and then the... we met at the Oyster Bar. And I came back. And ever since. So When was that? When that, was that? So you came back, I guess, 86, right? 96, 206. I've been back 30 years. That's great. Shit. <laughs> so let's, if we can transition I've to the... I've been here so long. I should be dead. <laughs> no, come on, come on, come on. You can't last forever, you know. <laughs> I'm the Betty White of docu. You look a lot better. <laughs> yeah, but there's more advances in fixing. <laughs> All right, so I got to ask you now about the job today. Take me through your involvement with a doc. A pitch comes into HBO or you... Well, docs have broadened at HBO. Okay. I'm not, uh, you know, I was the chief cook and bottle washer for a long time. The perception is still that I am. I would say that I'm probably not. I'm a cook and bottle washer, and that's okay, because I've written a book that's going to come mm -hmm. out far away. I've, I'm learning to smell roses, but I don't like them. <laughs> I'm not unreal. I'm not not realistic about hierarchy and change. I haven't really figured out what to do with what's left, but I know because I'm pragmatist that there was much more that was than that will be, and so I have to really figure it out. But there's Vice on HBO now. Are you involved you know? with that? No, no, okay, no. And I appreciate it and I watch it. Right. And I'm envious and I, you know, think it's right for HBO. So I watch the changing environment, and I realize I'm not as necessary to the rainbow of HBO, and that I have to do some serious thinking. You want to help me? Well, so what are you, <laughs> what are you thinking about? 
death. No. Yes. I've outlived both my parents, many of my colleagues, pretty enough, all things considered, from a distance, truck drivers still who are allowed to will whistle. But you're saying there is a time that you can imagine when Sheila Nevins would not be at HBO? I can't imagine ever not loving HBO the best of everything. Right. Just like when you're a parent. Right. There's a time when, you, you know, they marry and they have children. I think, you know, people fly from a nest, don't they? Before we get too heavy here, let's just, I want to still focus on the, on just the. I'm not writing my memorial service. No, don't. I'm getting, I'm getting. And I'm not uh, letting you write it either. I'm getting sad here about this. I don't want to even talk (laughs) about it. What, if anything, do all HBO docs share in common? Mine or other people's? The elevation of the common man. The elevation of the storytelling capacity of ordinary people to live in an uncertain world maybe always meant to be uncertain, in a planet that's in danger, maybe always in some kind of danger, maybe more danger now than ever before, but the nobility of the human spirit to survive. The ordinary person, I mean, I'm the Thomas Paine of documentaries. (laughs) I'm common sense and common man. I am truly a believer in the story of the person who cleans your office and who waits on your table and who makes your eyelashes longer. <laughs> I am truly a believer in their tale. I don't think I would know anything about being undocumented if it weren't for the eyelash lady. <laughs> I don't think I would understand that she had come across Mexico 20 years ago and taught herself English and made a business for herself as an undocumented woman and two children and terrified that that she, and she can't go home and see her grandmother. I don't think I would have understood it if I wasn't vain and needed long eyelashes <laughs> as they fell out as I got older. I think that I'm a great believer in asking people questions and finding out about how they have survived, whether they're milkmen or uh, you know blood donors. or I, It doesn't matter. I just like people. Yeah. I'm curious about how you make it through. I'm curious about how you make it through. Well, we'll come back to that. Okay. What are the main no, ways I in which... No, I want to do it now. <laughs> you think I'm easy? Well, but, Just because well, well, I'm answering all your questions doesn't mean I can't ask you a question. No, that's true. But, okay, uh, go ahead. What are the main ways in which docs are different today than when you started? Do you, and well, because of the crowding of the doc atmosphere, celebrity has moved in with force because marketing is so difficult. And then you have places like Netflix who have monopoly money I can't compete with Monopoly. And why not? You know, so what? The world changes. So you play a different game then. But but it's interesting. You know, like, I get a lot of credit for, like, the rebirth of docu. It's bullshit. I think the HBO docu started reality TV. I don't think it started, quote, unquote, the docu's about the ivory and the elephants. <laughs> Nobody gives a shit about those. <laughs> they win awards. They do well-ish but they don't do as well as those reality shows. I think that what HBO offered was that ordinary people could get ratings if they were hot. <laughs> and that may not be dignified, and that may not right? be the Orsalacious. Taxi Cab. Or Taxi Cab. Taxi Cab is a great, great show. Yeah. It is Shakespeare. It is fucking Shakespeare, <laughs> that show. It's genius. It's brilliant. People go into this confessional booth. They're a little high sometimes or not. They sign a release. They can call in the morning and take their release away, but they don't want to because they've told a real story. 
No different than Henry Miller. No different than D.H. Lawrence. No different than Chaucer. They they are. It is one of the great shows of television. Just logistically for people who may not know. So Taxi Cab Confessions, somebody gets in a cab. Certain cabs were outfitted with a cam- hidden camera. Cameras, yeah. When along the line were these people, did they learn that they were on camera? At the end, because it's a one-party consent state, New York. That's why you can't do it in But they in still London. had to sign a form. They still had to sign a release. So we nobody was on the there end. who didn't want to be on that. Never. Amazing. Never. Never a lawsuit. I just never. assumed that they... No, never. Yeah. No. If they were a little high that night, if they were a little... They were... They, we, we would talk to them again the next day and wow. get them to sign. <laughs> get them to sign. <laughs> we would ask them to sign. There were no remunerations. There right. was no money. There was a dollar for signing the release. Right. I don't think we ever... Once or twice, someone would walk into a taxi that I would know, you know, because this went on for years. But, you know, we, were, we didn't go after everybody. Sure. How about your job today versus when you started? The number of docs that you're expected to deliver and the amount of money you're given to deliver them each year, how has that the changed? The money is pretty much the same year to year, although if I rattle the cage and say I must buy this, then I usually get an allowance get for that. Yeah. yeah. And how many um, a year do you guys churn out? I guess 30. It ranges between yeah. 25 and 35. Wow. And yeah. how many people work at HBO Documentaries today? Not enough. Well, um, <laughs> there's me and Sarah and Jackie and Lisa and Nancy and Greg. That's it. Mm-hmm. And our great assistants. Sure. Yeah, assistant. What percentage of HBO's product does HBO Docs account for, roughly, if you had to guess? I don't know. I'd have to do it. I'm not, I, you sure. Know, math. I told you math. <laughs> you and me both. I have to ask my father. Yeah. I'll find out. Okay. How do HBO docs do relative to the rest of the product in terms of viewership? And do you feel a sense of pressure to deliver viewers? I have to say, and this is not to butter up anybody because, you know, my butter up days are over. (laughs) I have never been asked to perform numbers ever. And that has been the gift of of adventure and invention. I have never been asked to deliver. I mean, I am number-oriented, so... Even to this day, even though there's no such thing as premiere watching, you watch it on now, you watch right, it on go, right. you, you know, there's no such thing. I still look at premiere ratings because sure. I'm an old-fashioned person, <laughs> but I have never been asked to perform. And just to contextualize never, ever. why that might yeah. be, I found an interesting quote. This was when Chris Albrecht was here. He said, quote, the amount of noise the documentaries make and the amount of ratings they get make them the biggest bargain on the service because they're relatively inexpensive. So what you, year was that? 2002. Maybe it's different. that, maybe that different. changed. <laughs> it's 2016. That was 14 years ago. Right. But we so make you, less noise, I would think, because there's so much product out there. Even within HBO? I think even within HBO. There's a lot of product. What's the most yeah. you, you would spend on a doc? Me, personally, I spend $100 million on a well, doc. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you could get away with actually spending. I don't know. I mean, I guess we spent millions on docs. Uh, when when they were important enough. Well, do you things. recall what would be the most expensive one that you guys? I don't think I. I don't think. Oh, you don't. Okay, I'm. Sorry. I don't understand why we don't divulge it. By the way. Without saying a number, can you say what the film might have been? It might have been Citizen Four. Citizen Four. Okay. How about okay. production versus acquisition? Has that ratio changed over mm-hmm. the years? Mm-hmm. Because the di- the digital technology has allowed more people to tell a story by themselves without any help from financing. So you take out your camera, you start to tell a story, and suddenly that story is hot, and it's good, and it needs money after the fact. There's no paper anymore. 
people true. go out and shoot it. I don't have pay for this phone doesn't ring. I mean, we unplugged it, but I don't think it would have <laughs> rung more than two. I'm sure there are a hundred e- but emails. But there was a time like so pre turn of the century, yeah. right? You guys yeah, when were not I was doing born. acquisition. <laughs> yeah. No, we started all was original, and that was the great pioneer. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Because you had to come up with the ideas, but it's not like that anymore. But it's still by and large originals rather than no i think it's a third original a third completion and a third total acquisition interesting what about the role of theatrical you guys used to resist having films shown theatrically before they showed on hbo why was that and why did that change because i think the original the goal of hbo was you pay for it and therefore you get it first but now i think it's changed a little bit in the sense that you get it yeah. You get it from HBO. And so what if it's been in a theater? You didn't spend $15 in popcorn to get it. So you're going to get it, you know, when you're home right. as part of your package, as part of your deal with HBO, whether it's, you know. But I think that we still like to debut it on HBO. But look at it this way. If you're going to just debut it on HBO and you're not the only girl on the block, <laughs> nobody's going to know you're there. Right, right. So you begin to look at the theatrical and the festival as a kind of marketing tool. Yeah. So just here may mean also here, you know, because they know the title. And when there They've is seen a it around. HBO doc that's theatrically released, mm-hmm. you guys are doing the theatrical release or do you partner with some? It depends. Mostly we do it. Yeah. But sometimes it depends. How about the role of Oscars? You guys have won a ton of Best Doc Feature and Best Doc Short Oscars, and some years you've been responsible for as many as four in a category of five. Yeah. You guys, Those days are over, baby. Really? <laughs> Don't you, make me weep for the no, past. Well, it's I'm not trying that, to go forward, not backwards. Not that long ago. But yeah, you guys yeah. always qualified your docs, right? So how has that, the, the way of doing that changed? Everybody plays our game. The game is out. But the how chip, do you mean? For somebody that doesn't really follow Everybody qualifies everything. Whether you're Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever, you make a doc, you you qualify it. Because why not? You because just, why not? You pay for a week in a theater. I in mean, New look York at look at the OJ film. It's well, a, that's where we're coming to. Yeah, you're okay. very, you're right on it. So, yeah. but first though, the, the, one last night. The rationale. Oh, I did. Yeah. You're right, yeah. and that's kind of surprised me with the indie. Yeah, we're talking about the Gotham it. Awards, but yeah. but, uh, but but but. It is a grand documentary. Now there comes the big question, is it a theatrical well, that's documentary? Well, that's where we're going. So what's your okay. answer? Is it theat- Can't I mean, essentially just Well, to- if I didn't have other things up there, I would say, <laughs> you know, I don't know the answer. But before, but let, me, yeah. let me just contextualize for somebody yeah. listening. You guys sort of started this trend in a sense with the jinx. This was when this blew up interest in doc series. Yeah. Well, we didn't series. enter it in the in But you the didn't enter way. it in for, for- We didn't know we could. Well, who did? So <laughs> yeah. now the difference, so how many hours was the jinx? Six. So here we now, a year later, have a seven and a half hour doc made by ESPN. Right. This is OJ Made in America. They do qualify it. Right. All you have to do to do that is screen it a week in New York, a week in LA, so many times a day. So the, what a lot of people are saying is they didn't break any rules. They, they, you know, they got it done. But if this is the standard, then why shouldn't everybody who makes a doc series qualify it? And then it becomes untenable for Doc Branch members, of which I believe you're one for the Academy, how are you possibly, they can already not even keep up with what they're supposed to see before they're dealing with seven-hour documentaries. So what's your right. take on that? I think that the the doc group is a rather select group. My instinct is, and I could be wrong, I, 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 you know, I think they will not bring it forth because I think there has to be some distinction. On the other hand, maybe the lines are forth? so blurred. I don't know that it'll be in the 
the in final the, in the five. short list yeah. or in the final five. Might be in the short list, yeah, yeah. but I don't know if it'll be in the final five. Sure. Because I think within the docu maker's heart, mm-hmm. there is a definition of what a docu is. To say that it goes theatrical and then on television is very different from saying it's in seven parts on television and then it's suddenly a movie. You know, for, maybe I'm just old-fashioned and I make the distinction. I love O.J. I think it's the yeah. best film of the year. I agree. I really do. Is it a television show or is it a theatrical movie? Or was the theatrical an afterthought? See, maybe it has a lot to do with afterthoughts. Because had they made it as a three-and-a-half-hour whatever and then qualified it and then put it on television, but they didn't. They put it on as a television show and thought, holy shit, this well, is fucking good. You <laughs> but know, their counter-argument, and I'm not yeah. endorsing, but they say— I'm not endorsing or not endorsing right. either. I'm I'm thinking. They say yeah. they, we, we were unveiled at Sundance. Right. We went to Tribeca. We played festivals. We had a—we've screened, you know, in whole at, at theaters. So it's just so an interesting So then does debate. the night of—the night of, which is a brilliant narrative yes. that was on HBO. Yes. Brilliant. Genius. Yeah. Yeah. Does that qualify for an Academy Award? I think there, with narrative, there's a little bit of a different requirement. Why? I, I'm not saying there should be, but I think there there is. What What's also interesting is that you can be eligible for an Emmy before an Oscar, right? But they don't generally like, for instance, with Going Clear, you guys win the Emmy, you're still eligible for the Oscar, but in a way, the Oscars don't like sloppy seconds or whatever. Is that remember your sense? Remember, it's not. But remember, you're talking about the committee. You're talking about a bunch of. What is it? I don't know how many people are in the docu-branch. Probably uh, roughly a little over 100. You know? Yeah. So you're talking about, you're not talking about a new rule or a new MO. You're talking about 100 people who have slaved to make docus over a period of time, fought to get the theatrical qualifying, gotten most of their money from television, and now suddenly television is opening up and saying, we're going to do it six times, six times. Then that's going to move into th- narrative eventually. Then there's not going to be any distinction. And maybe it's right. Maybe there shouldn't be. Maybe the Academy's over. I don't know the answer. But, but my instinct is that the tight group will say no. I, I think they'll you, say no. And right. they'll say no only because of the history, which has a certain validity to the form. Doesn't mean it isn't the best documentary presentation of the year by by all judgments it is the best mm-hmm. it is hypnotic it is brilliant it is a first time filmmaker used to work here i mean it is extraordinary so what you know i mean i don't mean so what it's extraordinary i mean like i'm not going to try to sing in the opera <laughs> no i'm not i'm going to go to it i'm going to appreciate it but i'm not going to sing in it so maybe, maybe it can't sing in this particular race. And I would guess that. And if I'm would. wrong, you have to cut this whole no. part out. <laughs> no, but I think that what you're saying is is at the core of what some people's issues yeah. are with it. And maybe they just change the rules next year where whether whatever happens with it this year that says a doc for eligible for the Oscar has to be four hours or less or something. Yeah, because it has to be one time screening. One time. or So which would mean that a, a, a network could run something for three and a half hours and then do that. But the chances of them running three and a half hours is very small because they want to make the money on the advertising spread out over six or eight. However, HBO wouldn't have to do that, right? If you guys did the jinx, you could have done the jinx. We didn't. You didn't. No, no. (laughs) Is it too late? (laughs) (laughs) The jinx was where it belonged. Oh, yeah. And it did great as it was. And it did great as it was. And then you have to ask yourself, what did OJ gross in the theaters? 
I don't I don't know that it did that well there. I know that yeah. was rhetorical. So yeah. here's the to to give people a little sampling of some of the great movies that you've been responsible for. Can we just name maybe a handful of them and just whatever your stands out? No, I'm gonna I'll I'll prompt you and then okay. if I leave any out, okay. you tell me. But okay. just what stands out in your memory? This is cr- going chronologically. Common Thread stories from the quilt won the best doc feature Oscar. This was a movie in 1990. Yeah. What stands out in your memory about that? The crying and the um, introduction to the general public of the sorrow of HIV and AIDS. And Dustin Hoffman narrated it, and that gave it a great general appeal because he was in his prime. And not that he's not in his prime, but I don't mean that. But he was known to the subscriber, and therefore it was known to him to be something to care about. It would be something they should care about. Right. Heil Hitler, Confessions of a Hitler Youth, (laughs) 1991. This was a short. Did it win something? Did not, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think it... Ha- oh, that one. That was incredible. I saw that on... Oh, yeah. It had to do with my son. Yes. He wanted to be a Cub Scout, and he had to have a uniform and hit a drum. And I had just seen something on Arts and Entertainment, I think, the night before about con- uh, Hitler Youth, and there was a guy in it who said the same thing my son had said to me. I said, David, you don't want to be a Cub Scout because then... Mom has to go. They don't want babysitters, you know, and you need a uniform. It's not right, you know, whatever. <laughs> and the guy said the same thing in the confession, in the Hitler Youth thing. He said his name was Hans. Can't remember his last name. Hans said the same thing. He became a friend. He went to my son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> this is the former Hitler yeah, Youth. Yeah, this is the Hitler Youth. Okay, so yeah. I see him on this show, and he's saying the same thing my son said the day before. He's saying, I want to be the drum. I want to wear a uniform. I want people to be proud. I want my mother to be proud. I want my grandma to be proud. And my son says to me, I want to wear, I want to be the drum. I want to wear a uniform. I want to march in parades. I think, holy shit. <laughs> so it stays in my mind. I kind of convinced David out of it. I think I bought him Tetris, some kind of video game and, and whatever I could get him. And that was out of it. But it haunted me. The Hitler Youth thing. It haunted me, this guy, Hans. So I called the director of the film in England, because it was an A&E, BBC, or I can't remember who it was. But anyway, I called, and he was in Zambia making a film. And it went out of my mind, but it kept haunting me, this guy, who said the same thing. So then I got a call back. This goes back so many years. And it was the producer, and he said, oh, him, he's a bus driver in San Diego. (laughs) So I said, what? <laughs> yeah, he said, he's a bus driver. I said, would you mind if I called him? So then we did the show called Confessions of a Hitler Youth. And um, there's a lot the of disagreement. How your son's bar mitzvah, though? This is a I Hitler invited youth? him. But was there, because he Because I rep- interviewed him yeah. with Pierre, so- Pierre Sauvage, who did this film that I had seen on PBS, who was a hidden child. I couldn't really interview him because, you know, to me he was the enemy. Right. But Pierre Sauvage was hidden and made films. And so I got Pierre from L.A. and put him together with Hans, and we did an interview. There's a lot of criticism because it was a sympathetic portrait of a Hitler youth. And But you felt that he had a, a valuable yes. lesson to represent. And tell today, you know, so interesting. It's probably very old-fashioned and too, too slow and reversal stock and all that. But it's a message that resonates today, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, I mean, it does that sort of adolescent mind that can be captivated by form. Sure. over content and have power because you're small and there's big. Yeah. And he, he he talked in my son's private school on the Upper East Side and I brought Hans 
on that Monday, the bar mitzvah was, I think, Saturday night, and I brought Hans to the school to talk to them about Hitler and all that, and he started to cry Hans in front did. of them. It was like, yeah. yeah. He said, then Hitler gave me the Iron Cross. He said, it was the highest moment of my life. And we had to pull him out yeah. of the... It was really, but you That's could wild. see how an adolescent mind could be mesmerized right. into murder and genocide. And he wasn't a bad guy. He was just a child that needed power and strength and uniforms and drums. It's very interesting. He's dead now. Educating Peter, 1992, won the Best Doc Short Oscar. This is a story of a boy with Down syndrome in yeah. third grade. Yes. You guys later did a follow-up. Wasn't as good. What was the what do you what stands out about that one? I think you've said it's one of the things you're proudest of doing. No, that's still I did the Pelican film. My Pelican film. I love the Pelican film. Just wounded children. I'm very interested in wounded children and how they survive. And it was before the bullying rage. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to be wounded and to be small. And wounded and be big. <laughs> yes. Children were also the the theme of the next year's one, I Am a Promise, The Children of Sandin Elementary School. Yeah, that was the rain. 1993, won the yeah. Best Doc Feature Oscar. Yes. It's Any the same. You could run that today. It's the same story. Yeah. It's unequal. Well, I mean, we have a woman who's now the head of education who doesn't believe in, yeah. in private education. <laughs> I mean, it's the failure of the public school system to bring people to the same level so yeah. that they can play in an equal playing field. It's a very valid film. Absolutely. Uh, that same year, you... you a, a film that you made that lost to your own I Am a Promise. You had yeah. the broadcast tapes of Dr. Peter. Oh, my God. I love that film so much. You know, so many of my friends were, I started to cry. So many of my friends were HIV positive and were dying of AIDS. And Peter was a doctor in Vancouver, and I read his obituary in the New York Times. And I thought, and he had made 65, I can't remember how many tapes. And I thought if we could edit these tapes together, then we could present this beautiful because there was a picture of him in the times and then there was a obit and so i called the station in vancouver and the producer came here and we edited the 65 tapes did it win it lost to i am a promise so you oh. beat yourself but that was uh, that's an interesting oh, it was a long, long but didn't was. his partner go to the oscars after in, in after he'd passed away yeah and his dog and his dog right the yeah. dog had stood up when they that stood great up dog uh, One he Survivor great, Remembers, 1995, won the Best Gerda. Doc Short Oscar. Gerda, my friend Gerda, 93, I love her. She's she's still going. Yes. Oh, my God. You should do a piece with Gerda. She will, loves I, life. I will have to. She says she's bionic. That's amazing. Um, Gerda, I found her at the Holocaust Museum because I didn't, my son wanted to have a bar mitzvah because every, all his friends were having it and because he wanted to have a Las Vegas night. All the bar mitzvahs on the Upper East Side have a Las Vegas <laughs> night. And I said, David, you can't do that. You have to, not that I'm such a good Jew. I guess I'm historically <laughs> Jewish. I don't, I don't observe right. like Leanna, but I, I don't do the right things. I, one day, maybe, I don't know, mm -hmm. whatever. <laughs> Will you bury me in a Jewish cemetery, even though I've been bad? Anyway, so I took him to the Holocaust Museum with my husband, and we went to the Holocaust Museum. And he was very moved by it. He wanted to see all the exhibits where kids are not supposed to look down, but wow. he loved the Mengele and he loved the thing. And he, he said to me at some point, why are they smiling? They were like people, you know, it was just weird. He had a very weird reaction to it. And I, they went out to buy a, this is so corny. They, Sidney and David went out to buy a Jewish star. David decided he wanted to wear a Jewish star, which he wore for two weeks, Sydney but nonetheless, husband? yes. Okay. So they went out to buy 
by it, and my feet hurt. So I sat down in this on these benches in the museum, and they had survivors on the wall, and Gerda came up, Kurt, mm -hmm. her, her husband, mm -hmm. who had taken her from her death march at 65 pounds. He was, you know, and married her, and they had a great marriage. Well, anyway, they were up there talking with a lot of other survivors. And when I left, it was around the time of the 50th anniversary of the Second World War, and I said to Michael, instead of doing, like, the history of the Second World War, why don't we do one survivor, one person? I saw this person at the Holocaust Museum, and I think she lives in San Diego. Let me work. So we worked with the Holocaust Museum. She was also in San Diego, same as the— No, she was in Phoenix, Arizona okay. at the time. She, okay. she, no, she was not in San Diego. I was going to say, she, she, I hope she didn't run into that guy. No, yet. no, no. But we've been very good friends. <laughs> That's great. Next year, and obviously we could be, I could be mentioning yeah, so many more, but these are, yeah. no, but these are, yeah. these are so many great ones that yeah. any doc lover should, if you haven't seen any of these, get on it. And by the way, HBO Go allows you to see everything that's ever, I think, right? Any yeah. of these should be accessible. Mm -hmm. But Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Oh, Hood that, Hills. now that, that was totally, I've gotten a lot of credit for saving these three boys. One of them who needs help right now. But anyway. Well, you put the filmmakers onto the story, right? Yeah, but I didn't put them on the story for the reasons I get credit for. My friend Nola, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. had done a piece on exorcisms in the Catholic Church. And it was the highest rated piece on 2020. She stayed way yeah. after I was fired. Yeah. And I read a little article in the New York Times that said that three boys were arrested for witchcraft and murder of children in Arkansas, Arkansas. wherever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I sent Joe Berlinger to do a witchcraft story. I didn't know they were innocent. And he called me about three days later and said, they're innocent. I believe they're innocent. Oh. I said, tell the story. Go for it. Go yeah. for it you know? And eventually you and had eventually this controversial thing, though, because you, you made this decision to show, or they collectively made and the decision to show the bodies of these murdered second yeah, graders. Yeah, but you know what? You have That's to life. set the stakes of what's That's going life. on in the film, right? That's life. Censorship sure. kills passion and empathy. Four Little Girls, 1997, nominated for Best Doc Feature. That, first, was all, that was all Spike. But so this is the first time you worked with Spike. Then you later said the one that he did after Katrina, when the levees broke, you oh. said it was one of the most important films HBO ever made. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. And he's, because uh, it was about ordinary people surviving. Yeah. That's my thing. That's, that's Gerda, true. Yeah. you know. King Gimp, 1999, won Best oh, Doc Feature Oscar. Yeah, he was great. Guy because fell out of the I wheelchair gonna... when it won. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the thing about him that was so interesting about Gimp was that he taught me something because I was going to use one of those how voices. Yeah, yeah. And he made, quality, a, yeah. he made a tape and sent it to me. And it said, I want to speak for my hell. Don't dub me. You're my voice. Wow. And so I did. And you did. And and yeah. just to remind you, this is a yeah. guy who has cerebral palsy who you'd filmed since he was 12 yes, through yes, adult. Yes, anyway, yes. and then he's so like excited on the night that he, fell he out won that he fell out of his wheelchair. He'd fallen out the night before, too. He did. Okay. Yeah. We were eating dinner in the in the peninsula, and he fell under the table. We had to go oh, get him. Jesus. Because <laughs> the wheelchair moved back. He's <laughs> resilient. <Yeah. laughs> Very the the next year one that, that is was particularly Susan, Susan important that was uh, to yeah. me is because my mom is from South Africa and had worked on anti-apartheid things. Long Long Night's Journey into Day, yeah. two thousand, nominated for the Best Doc Feature right. Oscar. Any things about that? I acquired it. Acquired I can't take credit. Okay, 
The Iceman confesses secrets I, of a mafia hitman. Fuck, I deserve 2001. credit for that fucking <laughs> miserable right, guy. Right, right. I mean, this was oh, evil, boy. right? He he was pitched as a movie to HBO Films at the time. I don't know what it was called. I think yep. it was called HBO Films. And he, he, with actors and all. Yeah. He eventually made a movie. Yeah, Michael But Shannon. the guy who pitched it came here. He was a police ex-cop. And he came here, and I said, well, you know, what is it? Will he talk? You know, is he around? <laughs> And uh, <laughs> Gabby and I went to Trenton State Prison. And wow. this gig- this was a great producer here named Gabby Monet. She did autopsy and yeah, all those yeah. shows. And was he a star? People just, even though he was evil, oh. people just were drawn to him. He was great evil. Ooh. Spellbound, 2002, nominated for Bought the it. best. No credit. Doctor- no Can't te- take any credit. Capturing the Freedmans, 2003, nominated for the best doc feature Oscar. I, you know, smart enough to grab it. Okay. Gasland, 2010, nominated for the Best Stock Feature Oscar. Smart enough to take a chance. And really, there was a legal chance you were taking with that one, right? Well, HBO was. HBO was? Because was, you take I on Big safe. Oil. Yeah. Until Scientology, I was <laughs> right. safe. Well, that's the, that's our next one. Going <laughs> yeah, see, Clear, won the Emmy. You Pelican. Well, so tell me about the I don't even know the Pelican one. We wanted to do something about the oil spill, but we wanted to do what everybody else was doing. And on CNN, I saw this Pelican with oil on his things. And I thought, what if we tried to save a pelican from the oil spill? What would happen? No one saw this documentary. What's it called? It's called, it's called Saving Pelican 895. So we found a pelican. We got Irene Taylor Brodsky. I called her. I said, go. Sarah Bernstein and I called her. Go find a pelican that someone's trying to save, that one of those environmental groups is trying to save. And so you have to watch it. I, I will. No, I it. promise. It's one of the I great unknown documentaries of all times about environment. That's it's a, about the saving of a pelican. He can't, nobody cared about it. Unbelievable. He can't raise his arms. He can't do anything. He goes through a whole, he's a baby. Yeah. He goes through a whole cleansing process by these environmental groups. He has to learn how to fly. He has to learn how to be a pelican. He doesn't have a mummy to teach him. And then in the end, I won't tell you what All happens. right, I can't wait to see it. But he's put on the end of the surf and... The question is, will he be able to fly? I can't wait to see it. Any any comments about your 2016 crop, which includes Mapplethorpe, look at the pictures, Marathon, the Patriots Day bombing. Favorite. Everything is copy uh, about Nora Ephron. Yeah. Nothing left unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper, and I believe Mavis. So with right now the doc branch that we were referring to earlier, they're currently mulling their shortlist. They're not going to be on the show. Right? You don't think any of the five? Say them again. Mapplethorpe, Marathon, Mapplethorpe, everything is too copy. Too many penises. It could be on the show list. Which one? The penis one. Mapplethorpe. Mapplethorpe, excuse me. Yeah. 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 Nothing left unsaid, Mavis. So you think that would be the one if one makes it? Because they're Television. just, they see it's it as It's a big TV. year for 13. It's a big year for I Am Not Your Negro, one of the great documentaries of all time. It's What's going to win this year? 13 probably, or I you Am Not so? Your Negro, or maybe um, Life Animated yeah. or whatever. But my favorite is I Am Not Your Negro. In our brilliant, what I promise will be our last two minutes, and I'm gonna. I'm I know I've gone way time. over. I, 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 I feel like it's I, all over. No, I, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm taking advantage. But how no, can I not? Listen, where am I gonna go next? <laughs> I mean, you did my whole life. This is so story. great. No, I'm loving it. Uh, Are you gonna come back and see if there's anything else? I wanna, left I wanna so, hang with any time. How about anything left unsaid? This is. <laughs> yeah. How about giving me a break on that? This is great. Okay, you have more primetime Emmys than anyone else in history. Yeah. Well. Because of Don Hewitt, I put my name on everything. <laughs> and where where do you keep these? 
They're in the room. We'll show you. Oh, the we room. can see before I leave. Awesome. Okay. I don't want uh, home. Could you have been as successful at a network where you were constrained by you know the, the non cable type things? Since it doesn't matter anymore, and I don't have to suck up. I don't think so. I think I would have been successful no matter what I did because I'm ruthless mm -hmm. and because I'm determined and because I'm good. But I don't think I would have had would the have career tough. I had that if I hadn't been here. I what think the lack of commercials, I think the fact that my bosses, although they may have given me a hard time, <laughs> um, listened. Yeah, they've been good. I think, you know, I'm a fighter. And I'm a daydreamer. And I've come up with a lot of ideas all on my own which is unusual in this particular yeah, area since it's usually handed down by what's, you know, the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I have been able to read through the zeitgeist, I think, is my strength. And the fact that they have allowed me to go on a hunch has been a great gift. And that's gone through every boss. I have not had a boss here. I've given them all a hard time. <laughs> I think that, that probably many of them would... I'm a fighter. No, I'm, clearly, a, I'm in a ring all the time, even when I'm not in a ring. I love it. <laughs> what are the docs that got away from you that, that sort of haunt you? Restrepo. I am not your Negro. That was one that could have been here. Oh, God, that's a great <laughs> film. How about <sighs> I heard Daniel Ellsberg, the uh, most dangerous man in America? I love that docu. I don't know if it was right for our audience. For I don't know that they would have identified with him. It was a great docu. Is there a filmmaker who got away? Would you have loved, for instance, I'm just throwing out a... Uh, Ken Burns is so associated with PBS. Would you have liked him to be an HBO guy? No. No. You no. Just, there's certain things... He that, had an authorship, a very fine authorship that was identified with another network. I'd rather invent than copy. No, but what I mean is early on, if you had, could he have, would you have liked to have had his whole career here at HBO? No, because he might have taken my career away. <laughs> could have done Would you ever allow a documentary to be made about yourself? Never. Why? Just like I wouldn't be on camera for... You wouldn't do it again? I don't think so. Why, well, you think I'd be a good doctor? I, I mean, listen... This is a by, docu. By the time somebody gets to this point in the interview and, and yeah. you're asking that question, I think they're going to be I'm saying, very flattered that you would think that. I don't think I'm a celebrity. I think that I'm a really smart person. I think it's better in writing and in talking than in seeing... You know, I don't have gatherings of the past that I can bring forward. I'd rather not be remembered in that way. What's going to happen when I'm to not HBO documentaries when either voluntarily or as will happen with all of us at some yeah. point, involuntarily we depart? What's what's going to happen? What would you like to have happen at HBO well, wait, What would I like? Yeah. I'd like them to fall flat on their <laughs> What would I like them to happen? Yeah. I would like to feel that the seed I planted continues to grow. Right. But I'm not sure that I'll be watching so much. Never. Is that selfish? No, it makes sense. Uh, it makes it's sense. true, isn't it? <laughs> it's I'm like, not one for euphemism. No, I appreciate the honesty. Go ahead. Last question. Have you ever sort of paused and thought about how many different sorts of stories and people you have brought Never to the world? Never until you did it just well, now. Well, <laughs> don't, don't. Yeah. Then also what it might be like if it were somehow possible to gather all of these people <laughs> in one that. room, that would be a hell of a gathering, right? I mean, what would you what would you make of it's sort of like you can turn on the TV and see your a large part of your life yeah, anytime. True. Well, frankly, the one I'd like to see the best is the Pelican. The other ones that I really have held close I've seen. Yeah. I have a birthday card from the Iceman. <laughs> I have You had the a, Hitler Youth Year Beads Barbets, from right? Gerda Klein. Yeah. I have mementos from all these people. Right. Would they all be in the room at the same time? 
I don't know if they'd get along with each other. Probably they might not. be competitive. <laughs> Gerda <laughs> would certainly knock out anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank this you. was so much fun. Appreciate I really it. appreciated it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.